This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. The following message is one of Robert's original messages to men on manhood, found here under the series heading, Authentic Manhood. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. This morning, we're going to take on and tackle probably what I consider life's most preeminent subject. In fact, it'll be a subject that'll be the topic of conversation in your home as much or more than any other, oftentimes producing more heat than light. And that's the subject of money. We all feel that, don't we? The issue of money. Money on the surface kind of has a benign character to it, doesn't it? I mean, it is just paper printed, right? In your wallet, it's a passive, morally neutral medium of exchange. But when it gets in your hands, it turns to something totally different. It comes alive. It becomes more like nuclear power. And depending on how you use it, it can unleash on you and your home and your marriage and your family either a world of good or it can unleash a world of hurt. Money is a force that sooner or later every man has to reckon with. And wisdom will shout to you, sooner! It'll always say, sooner! Because sooner when it comes to money is much better than later. So how does a man make the money work at home? That's going to be our focus today. And for you younger guys, I want to encourage you today. I think today we'll present to you some basics, what I call some financial fundamentals. But here's what I can promise you. If you'll listen closely and take note of these and package these and make this a part of your lifetime resume, it will lead you into that world of good. For those of us who are older, we're going to hear some things today that will make us smile because we'll kind of fall back and say, you know, I've done those things, and they do exactly what Robert's been talking about this morning. They bless me. On the other hand, we'll talk about some things that will be reminders to you, and you'll think back and you'll say, you know, those are things that I need to start again. Or for some of you, I need to start right now before life blows up on me. We're going to talk about the huge subject of money. So I want to begin by looking at three what I call big picture perspectives here today. Here's the first one to help us get started. Money promises happiness, but the facts say otherwise. I like what Louis Armstrong, the famous black jazz musician, once said. He said, money can't buy happiness, but it sure does quiet your nerves. That's true, isn't it? Money has a way of quieting your nerves. But on the other hand, nearly every research survey that's been taken in the last 20 years declares that money and possessions are only, and this is the quote, weakly associated with being happy. In fact, what they found, the researchers have found, is that once your basic living expenses are taken care of, believe it or not, money actually decouples with the concept of happiness. Once basic money needs are met, 
money actually begins to compete with your happiness by refocusing the person who has the money on illusions that promise life but rarely deliver it. While at the same time, crowding out people and pursuits that do deliver real happiness. That's the struggle with money. A second big picture perspective is this. What couples argue about the most and the longest is money. That's a fact too. Research at the Center for Marital and Family Studies at the University of Denver reported that couples who listed their problems over an extended period of time. And the study included couples who were pre-married, just dating, being together for a long period of time, and then couples who were actually married for an extended period of time. And all the couples, pre-married as well as married, rated their number one area of conflict as the issue of money. Money creates the greatest heat in a marriage. And the interesting thing is, even over a long period of time, even as much as couples argue about the money, oftentimes there's never a resolution. The money problems simply continue. Let me give you two major reasons why money is such a problem in marriage. Here's the first. It's because most couples have little, if any, practical financial instruction to draw on. I mean, think about it. Think about your life for a moment. As I thought about mine this week, and you realize that few of us were taught money money management practices at home. I mean, the most personal money instruction I received was an allowance when I was a teenager. Dad just gave me a little bit each week to make it through my teenage years, but any detailed understanding of how you make money work personally. I just assumed mom and dad took care of that. I didn't face the hard reality of what was before me until I actually graduated from college. And I remember my mom on the phone telling me, that's it. I said, what do you mean that's it? The money. That's it. Boy, what a scary moment that was. (laughs) Because I didn't have any of it. And now I had to go out in life on my own. Few of us have any instruction about money from our home life. Also, few of us were taught any money management practices while we were in school. Hey, I was in the business school. And I was taught how to do spreadsheets on companies. But I was never taught about any personal financial management practices at home. And so we're left with kind of this vacuum of how you make the money work at home, which is where our emphasis is going to be today. And so for most couples, home and finances simply don't mix well because most of us as couples address the financial issues of our life this way, through a painful trial and error process rather than through proven, well-established money principles that me as a husband and my wife have agreed upon in advance. And because of that, we just stumble in the darkness over years, maybe decades, of our marriage trying to make the money work on guesswork. That's one reason. 
A second major reason behind money conflicts is this one. Most couples have differing financial personalities. We talked about personalities, remember, a few weeks back, but I want to add two additional personalities within the mix that I gave you. Most marriages, guys, have a financial ying and a financial yang. I'm not sure which one you are, but usually the yin and the yang find each other financially and get married. The yin is what I call the numbers conscious personality. That's the one who will always remain a little financially anxious. The person who keeps their eye on the checkbook, pays the bills, looks at the cost and the debts and the need to save. And then there's the financial yang personality, what I call the carefree personality, the live and let live type who is financially optimistic, who enjoys money and spending, who sees checks as a sign that money is in the bank account, and who thinks saving money is buying something on sale. That's how they reason through life. Now, cholerics and melancholies tend to be a little bit more of the numbers conscious personality. Sanguines and phlegmatics tend to lean more to being the carefree kind of personality. Wonder which one are you? Which one are you? And which one is your wife? If both of you are numbers conscious personalities, then you probably don't need this session today. If both of you are carefree personalities in a marriage, and you need a lot more than this session today. You need a lot of help. But most of us, for whatever reason, we find a balance between the yin and the yang. And when a yin and a yang come together in marriage, especially when they are financially unschooled, as most of us are, with very little to draw on from our home and very little to draw on from school, and we come together, then conflicts are inevitable. You're going to have fits. You're going to have fights. You're going to have these ongoing, nagging arguments about the money. I remember early in our marriage, because I'm more of the numbers-conscious personality and my wife more of the carefree personality, I remember early in our marriage of accusing my wife in almost a fit of rage of accusing my wife that she had some sadistic pleasure in getting overdrafts from the bank. She seemed like we enjoy, she enjoyed it. And in those early days of her marriage, we were getting the overdrafts in, by bulk mail. I mean, they were coming in fast and furious. And I thought, what is the deal here? It's conflicts like that and the empty promises that money makes to you that easily chase you in the wrong directions. It's the fact that money requires wisdom and not guesswork that brings us then to the third perspective that we need to know about, and that's this one. For the reasons cited above, the Bible speaks long and hard on money. And what every person who's taken what the Bible has said seriously discovers is that the Bible in every generation offers a wisdom that works. Did you know there are over 2,300 passages in the Scripture about money? more than any other subject except God himself. And just the sheer volume of statements on money in the Bible says that it is a big issue in life. So what we want to do is sample a little bit of the wisdom 
of the Scripture as we give some principles to help you make the money work in your home. Here's some high-yield money practices for couples. And to help us, and I'm kind of a simple financial thinker, I've reduced them down to just three. I think these are kind of the three foundation stones on which to build a home with money. And happy is the couple who employs them. Here's the first. It's a simple one. Just face the facts. Years ago, there was a television commercial that would come on late in the evening, and it would come up on the screen, and it would say, it's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? That's a good question, wasn't it? Here's a question of equal importance. Do you know where your money is? as a couple? That's a good question too. And the truth is, if you interview couples, most of them don't. They live in a much more of a, of a fog as far as how the money is actually being spent. Oh, they can tell you what the house payment is and the car payment, some of the big ticket items. But if you were asking them for a clear understanding of where all their money went to eating out, to clothes, to gas, to cell phones, to paying off debt on credit cards and things like that, and how all that actually adds up, most couples would be clueless about their spending. And you know where they're most clueless? They're most clueless about what the other person spends in the marriage. The husband doesn't know what the wife spends and where it's being spent. And the wife doesn't know what the husband spends and what he's spending. And remember the old principle from a few sessions back? People get down on what they're not up on. And when I don't know what my wife's doing and she doesn't know what I'm doing, conflict is inevitable because you begin to have vain imagination and suspicions. And you begin to accuse them of spending too much when they know you don't know what they spend or why they're spending what they're spending. Here's what the Scripture offers. Just a clear statement here in Ephesians. It says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, those vain imaginations, speak truth to one another. Applied to finances, it means this. Know what you really spend. Know what you really spend and on what. Of course, the question is, how? How do you know what you really spend? What's the answer to that? What's the practical application? I can put it in a one word. It's the word tracking. It's, a, it's kind of the old-fashioned way, guys. Tracking. And from time to time throughout the course of my marriage, I've done tracking. In fact, believe it or not, here at 54 years old, just last month, my wife and I, kind of entering a new season of life, sat down and we said, you know, we just need to know what we're doing with the money. Let's track it. So for 30 days, we went through, yes, a tedious procedure, and that is having a little notebook and writing down everything we spent. From time to time, that's just a, a good procedure, a tedious procedure for sure, but just writing down everything that you spend and then coming back together after 30 days and putting it all down and seeing where the money went. Let me tell you, it's an effective eye-opener. And sometimes it's very surprising because it helps a couple 
come to grips with where they're spending their money collectively. And even more importantly, it will help, listen, it will help you as a couple know what the other person is doing with the money. And for me and my wife, that was the biggest help in this new season of life we're in. I needed to know what she was spending the money on, not in an accusing way, just to become literate. Because when I found out what she was spending and how much things cost, it gave me a totally different awareness of her world and vice versa, my world. By the way, I can't tell you how many wives have told me from time to time in counseling sessions how angry their husbands get with them about spending so much money when the wife will say to me, he has no idea what I'm spending the money on. That's why this is such an important procedure, this tracking. So the first high-yield money practice, guys, is just can you handle the truth? If you can, then you need to face the facts and see where the money goes. That leads us to the second high-yield money practice, and that's decide together as a couple where you want your money to go, and here's the key word, before you spend it. Decide together before you spend it. Here's what the Scripture says, Amos 3.3. Can two walk together unless they be agreed? And of course, the answer, it's begging the answer, no, they can't. Unless they're agreed, they're not going to be able to walk well together through the course of life and the affairs of life and the situations of life and the problems of life together. They're not going to be able to do it. There's going to be problems there. So before you spend the money, you need to agree where it's going to go. Otherwise, after you spend the money, you're going to be at each other. That's why every couple needs a plan that they both can say yes to. Now, am I advocating that everybody operate under this detailed, rigid budget? No, I'm not. But I am saying, especially to you younger guys, early in your relationship, early in your marriage, that you do need some kind of budget that you're operating off of that you become so comfortable with over time, it just kind of melts into the marriage and becomes an understood practice. Everybody with me on that? That's very important that you hear that. So how do you do that? How do you come up with that budget in the early years? Well, here's some suggestions. First, as I said, you need to take the facts. You got to do the tracking first. You got to have the facts before you do anything else. But once you have those facts, then you look at them and you budget out your money out of the reality of how you're actually spending it. The facts say what you're doing with the money. On the other hand, what a budget does is it takes that reality and says, now how do we really want to spend the money? And you begin to put it in categories and ways that you can agree on before you spend it and then say, we're going to stay within those particular categories. Now, if you notice, guys, in your notes, I've given you a budget form. We're not going to look at it this morning. I know it looks a little intimidating, but that is how you start. You get the facts, then you take those facts, and you say, no, we don't want to live exactly that way, but then you decide beforehand on that budget how you want to spend the money and where. But here's what I do want you to hear this morning, because you can do that budget later. Most couples 
in the early years, young guys, look at me. Most couples in the early years are going to need help in doing a budget. I did. I mean, I was a graduate of the business school, but when it came to personal finances, I needed some help. There's nothing wrong with asking for help. You can ask for help from a financially wise friend, a more seasoned veteran of life. You can go to a financial counselor. You can be involved in some financial seminar that comes around from time to time in the community or in the church. But, but here's the key. You do it together. As husband and wife, you learn together what to do with the money and how to decide beforehand how to spend that money. And every couple who does that in the early years of their relationship is, is really investing the wisest they ever will in their marriage. After you've got that budget, here's the most important thing, though. Once you get it established, here's what you need to know. Never spend money that has not been pre-approved first. You have categories you spend out of, as you see on the, the budget sheet that I gave you, but never spend money that's not been pre-approved because non-approved spending does two things. It's going to create some financial quagmires that you're going to get bogged down in that's going to steal, it's going to steal your freedom or it's going to create conflict. So that's the second high-yield money principle. Here's the third, and you almost want to shout this one, limit debt. Limit debt. Proverbs 22.7 says it succinctly. The borrower becomes the lender's slave. Now there are three kinds of debt. <clears throat> there's what I call good debt. There's what I call questionable debt. There's what I call ugly debt. The good, the questionable, and the ugly. Good debt could be called intelligent borrowing because the debt is secured, meaning that the lender holds something of value that's at least equal to what you borrowed from him. Therefore, if you can't pay that debt, he can take back that collateral and everything's settled. And of course, a good kind of debt would be a home loan. A home loan, an appreciating asset. Questionable debt is questionable because of a number of variables. I want to give you three of them that I want to tell you about that I would put under the questionable category. First, a car loan. A car loan can be good or bad. It's good when you can borrow a little bit to buy a car and have wheels that you can have transportation for yourself and your family. On the other hand, it's bad when you borrow so much for so long that that debt begins to weigh on you as a family. And some young guys in particular want to get, when they get out in life and they first get a job, they want to get the biggest, the hottest, the sharpest car, finance it over five years, and then suddenly discover that it's an anchor constantly pulling them underwater. On the other hand, it can be a good debt if you purchase a car wisely. I remember the first uh, really 10 years of my marriage, I always bought a used car or a program car. It was always a fairly nice car, had limited miles on it. I took good care of my cars, but, it was, but I was always paying half of what everybody else paid. 
I just bought a truck a few years ago for my son. And he, he, he found this truck that he wanted. He was so excited about, but it was pretty expensive. I said, we can't do that. I said, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna wait. We're going to pray and we're going to wait until we've got a good deal. And suddenly we found that very truck up in Searcy, Arkansas, with only 14,000 miles on it, that was less than half the retail price from a guy who needed to unload it. Now that makes all the difference in the world because you pay it off quickly. And as you pay it off, the value of the truck is pretty much equal to what you owe. And that's a good debt. But beware of car loans, especially early in the first season of life that become an anchor on your finances. Secondly, student loans. Student loans can be good or bad. They can be good when they help you get through college or graduate school. They can be bad when you use a student loan as a sense of entitlement. And you kind of go, well, I've got their loans out there and so I'm going to pay all of college and all of graduate school with these student loans, not thinking of how much they're going to impact you once you're out of school. And then when you get out of school, you might not even like the career that you took the student loan out for, and now you feel locked into that career because you're going to pay on it for the next 10 years. It's much better to use a student loan wisely. And for some of us, it's much better to use it in a way where you work a little more in college and in graduate school, go a little longer to that school, and finish not owing debt. I can say that because I went through graduate school. I got two master's degrees and a doctorate. And I went two years longer on my master's and four years longer on my doctorate. And during my master's time, I had to work several jobs. My wife worked, but I can still remember driving out of Portland, Oregon with my diplomas debt-free. And it felt good. Beware of the student loan. And then home equity loans. They can be good when they help you consolidate your debt and lower your payments and stuff like that. But if you're an undisciplined spender, a home equity loan becomes H-E-L for you. Because all you do is refinance your debt and then run up even more of it. Those are questionable loans. And finally, the ugly loan. And of course, I think we all know the ugly loan. It's credit cards. Credit cards. And I'm not talking about credit cards for convenience that you pay off each month. I'm talking about credit cards where you purchase items that you can't afford with money that you don't have at super high interest rates. The Bible says that's the way of the fool. So limit debt. Now I want you to look at me for a moment because I have been with couples for 30 plus years in pastoral counseling. And I can tell you something with absolute authority here today, and it's this. The couples that I know, and I know a lot of them, the ones who are successful with their money at home, those couples practice these three high-yield money practices. They practice them. They face the facts. They decide together before they spend, and they limit debt. And their financial world though it may start smaller than most in the early years of their marriage, by the middle years and the later years have expanded way beyond their friends. Way beyond. 
because they secured their financial future with these healthy, high-yield practices. Now, with that said, let me walk through what I believe is a winning formula for managing your money at home. It's a formula I think that any couple can use, but it's particularly helpful to young couples, to couples who like to keep things simple like me, and for couples who maybe need some restructuring in their marriage. If you notice on letter A, it's a formula that should be managed by the numbers conscious personality in the home. And here's the formula. It's going to look a little intimidating at first, but it's really dumbed down simple. Okay? MTH minus G minus S minus 112th IE minus CA minus RMB equals DM. What in the, what does that mean? <laughs> it's a formula I think you ought to write in your checkbook and live by, as I do. And by the way, I'm giving you what I live by. Here's the first. Let me just break it down for you. MTH just stands for your monthly take-home. That's what you bring home every month. So that's real simple, isn't it? G is the money that you give away. And I put that first because that's what the Scripture does. It puts giving as first. Here's what the ancient wisdom of Proverbs <clears throat> encourages us in. It says in Proverbs 22.9, He who is generous will be blessed. Now just look at that for a minute, guys. Let's don't run too quickly by. That's going to be a position of faith. That he who is generous will be, not might be. He who is generous will be blessed. Now I can give you research that will tell you that people who are givers with their money and their lives are the happiest, healthiest people alive. But the scripture has said that for thousands of years, that he who is generous will be blessed. Wisdom says we need to regularly give some of our money away. Wisdom says that the Christian, if you're a Christian man here today, that the Christian honors God for blessing him because he believes he is blessed by God by giving God a regular tithe. Proverbs 3.9 says, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. That's why I think we give first. The Scripture says what we give is a tithe. Now, if you know anything about a tithe here today, you know the word in the Bible, tithe, means literally tenth. A tenth or 10%, which I think kind of sets the bar for the Christian on how he is to give. But the first thing you do with your monthly take-home is you subtract your giving. Wisdom says that for every, Christ, for every man, Christian or not, there are three reasons that you need to give. First, giving is a character builder that counteracts corrupting greed. I never will forget being in Claremont, California and having lunch with Peter Drucker. Some of you business types know Peter Drucker. He is a, one of America's greatest business and cultural minds. But we were talking there in Claremont, and he said this. He said, Robert, history shows prosperity has never been good for humanity. Just that little simple, succinct statement. Because it has such corrupting power. And it does. The wisdom of the Scripture says that. Look at 1 Timothy 6 on the screen. It says, But those who want to get rich fall into many foolish and harmful desires, for the love of money 
is the root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it. Where it becomes the ruling principle of their life. They've pierced themselves with many sorrows. That's why we give because wisdom tells us that giving is the antidote to greed. Giving connects us to helping others which is a major ingredient to personal happiness. Giving also connects us to a greater purpose than ourselves, which is a second major ingredient of personal happiness. I mean, if you look at all the research for decades, it'll tell you that the happiest, healthiest people are those who give and connect to others and who give to a greater purpose than themselves. And then we spin back down through the ages to a carpenter out of Nazareth who says this, it's more blessed to give than to receive. So that's why we give. Secondly, we subtract S. What is S? S is what we pay ourselves for saving for the future. Of course, today you can elect to do that automatically out of your check, which is a, a discipline of sorts. But here's the point. Save something out of every check. And I would recommend that a healthy monthly savings amount is 10%. And you go, whoa, 10%. That's huge. It is a lot. But here's what I want you to know. Or maybe you can find it out for yourself. Just call up a financial planner. Go talk to him. Talk about what you want to retire on. And talk about college and let him tell you what those future demands will demand of you now. And 10% won't look so bad. In fact, it'll look pretty good. And here's the point. The point is, the sooner you start saving as a young man, even out of that small check, the better because of the compounding principle of money. And you can talk to any guy with white hair here today, and I promise you, they will say, you better listen to what he said. So saving is important. Subtract it from your paycheck. Third, subtract what I call the 112 IE. What is that? It's, again, what we pay ourselves. We pay ourselves savings. Now we pay ourselves for irregular expenses that come due throughout the year. And you, you know you can quickly get a handle on what those irregular expenses are by going back just simply through your checkbook over the course of a year and look at the quarterly insurance payments that came in, the tuition that was due uh, bi-yearly, the Christmas expenses. Add all those things up, you know, just put them together and then divide by 12. And when you get a figure, that's that one twelfth. And here's what you do. Get your monthly take-home, you subtract your giving, you subtract your savings, and then you write another check out and you put it in a separate checking account that I call the freedom account. You just pay yourself and put it aside in that account. Get it out of your checkbook and into another checkbook that maybe you keep in a dresser upstairs. And then when those irregular monthly expenses come due, you have money in this separate account to pay for them. Now, that's my simple mind trying to help you figure it out. But let me tell you, it works for me. 
And I cannot emphasize enough the tension and stress that is inflicted on a marriage, and some of you probably had it just this week, the tension and the stress that's inflicted on you and your home when you sit down to pay bills, and then you pull out one of them, and it's one of those irregular expenses. It's the car insurance. And it blows your whole budget, and it ruins your whole month, and it puts you in the hole because you weren't thinking about it in advance. Fourthly, subtract what I call CA. Now listen carefully. What is CA? It's Mr. and Mrs. Carefree's monthly allowance that is paid out to bless them, but also to boundary them. As I mentioned earlier, my wife is a carefree kind of personality type, and I'm the numbers guy. In the first decade of our marriage, I was constantly trying to get her to make the money work in a singular checkbook. And it never did. I just, she finally just wore me out, guys. I just couldn't do it. There were entries with no numbers and things like that. It just wasn't working. And it caused a lot of, really, a lot of tension in our relationship. And then we stumbled upon something that has worked well for us ever since. Okay? I've got my checking account. I've got my little freedom account. Then we opened up her a separate checking account. And what we place every month in that separate checking account is an amount that we've agreed upon in advance that she thinks is fair, and we put it in her account. And then she does everything she wants to do out of that checking account. She doesn't have to keep records, numbers, or anything else. But here's what she has to do. She has to pay the overdrafts. <laughs> so I've given her this freedom, but I've also helped her have some boundaries. And ever since we've, we've started that, we've struck a happy middle ground that provides for her spontaneity, but it also provides for her some limits, which has been very healthy. Now, it doesn't have to be the woman who needs the allowance. Because as you guys know, and I know, there are a number of homes where the carefree personality is the guy. And, and, and this may be a little harder on the guy, but I would still recommend it, that if your wife does the numbers, that you come up with an amount that's agreed upon, that you think is fair, that you get, and you can spend however you want. Either way, but subtract CA, which brings us to the fifth thing. We subtract, and that's the RMB, which are just those regular monthly bills that we pay that the numbers conscious personality will make sure gets paid, which leaves us with DM. DM is the discretionary money we have left for ourselves as a couple. Discretionary money is at the end of the equal sign for a reason. It's the leftover I call it the great reality motivator. <laughs> because after you've subtracted all those other things and taken care of everything that you need, there it is, what's left. And if you don't like what's left, you have only three healthy choices. You can work harder and earn more. You can go back and redo the budget so that you spend less or you can change jobs. And that figure there is there to signal how to be responsible. 
work harder, spend less, or you need a different job. And all three of those are healthy for a man in life to come to grips with. Otherwise, if you like what's left, or probably none of us like what's left, but what do you do with what's left? Here are some things that you can do with that discretionary money. First, you decide in your budget in advance which areas get what of that discretionary money. So you budget out how much for entertainment, how much for clothes, how much for new furniture, how much for decorating, those kind of things. You budget it out. If you're a young couple just starting out or you're a couple who struggles a little bit with discipline, then I would recommend that you take this designated money and put it in cash envelopes of what's left. And by the way, for a number of years in my marriage, that's exactly what we did. In fact, I can still remember where it was in our dresser, our top dresser. We had four or five envelopes and we'd take that discretionary money and we'd put it in there. And some would be for entertainment or eating out. I remember when we lived in Portland, every Friday night, we always went to the same Mexican restaurant because you could get all you, all you could eat for $2.50. And I always had the number two. That's how much it's embedded on my mind. But you know what? It kept us financially sound living out of those cash envelopes. Now, over time, you can move and just leave it all in the checkbook. Of course, if you leave it in the checkbook, the numbers conscious personality needs to be the one who watches over it. Okay, that wasn't so hard, was it? That's the formula. Be good to just write the formula in your checkbook. Kind of rehearses what are going to be the things that I need to do to make the money work at home. Now to that, I want to answer two important questions. The first is, what about credit cards in this formula? I got two answers. When it comes to credit cards in this formula, there should be no charging on credit cards unless you both agree. Because remember, credit cards move you into the ugly. So be careful. And then secondly, you should relinquish any credit cards that you can't control. <clears throat> I want to tell you a funny story. When we came to Little Rock and I began to work here, just setting up our home. We'd never had a home, a real home that we owned ourselves. And so we bought our first home, built our first home. And in the process, you know how expenses tend to expand? Well, they expanded on us. And even I got out of control. And after a while, I remember opening up the visa bill and the discover card and there was just too much there. And I got really frustrated. And I told my wife, I said, you know, we're just at a place where we can't control ourselves. And so she said, well, what do you suggest we do? And so I pulled out a cookie sheet pan, set it there on the table, and I said, put your credit cards there. So she put them there, and I put mine there, and I preheated the oven to 350, and I stuck them in there. <laughs> I did. I melted them. So we could not charge. That's, that's, that's where, I'm just telling you, that's where we were. And we needed to do something about it. And it needed to be drastic action. Now, we laugh about it, but let me tell you, it helped us because it restored some sanity in a time where we were fiscally out of control. So, that's what you do about credit cards. Secondly, what about God? What about God? 
We'll talk more on this later, but let me just say this. Happy is the man who discovers that he is not alone in life. And it's not all on him financially. That he has a God who acts. He has a God who cares for him. He has a God who is a provider for him. He has a God who is behind his daily bread. That's not an empty prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. There's a God who hears that prayer. And he has a God who will often prosper him with more. Listen, guys. He has a God who will often prosper him with more if he proves faithful with less. That's very important to hear. Now let me conclude our session today with this. Four must, four must for the married man concerning money. Here's the first. As a man, you need to accept responsibility. If you've been in men's fraternity, you've heard that word before. You need to accept responsibility for sound financial practices in your home, whether you're the numbers conscious personality or not. Just because you're carefree gives you no excuse to go passive. You need to lead in the marriage and say, we're going to set it up, honey, in a way that this works. You can lead in that way. Don't be a drag in your marriage. If you lead, here's what it'll produce. It will reduce stress and conflict between you and your wife. It will draw your wife's respect and admiration, something you desperately need from her. That's one of your number one needs. It brings security to your wife, one of her top needs, and freedom to your marriage. But in it all, just remember, it will require the paradox principle. Which says if you want to live a lot with money and you want to live well for a long time with money, you're going to have to die a little bit every day for it. A second must is this. Make sure you have provided for the future of your family. And you can make sure you provided for the future of your family. That's a must. By making sure you have a will. Okay, circle that. Start. You need a will. And you need to be sure that you have adequate insurance in two areas. One in the case of your death, which is life insurance, and the other, in the case of disability, which means you're injured and you have life insurance and disability insurance. That provides for the future of your family. A third must is this. Provide a safe place for keeping all your important financial information. I hope you have a place where you can put that. And if you can put it in a fireproof uh, container at home, that's great. Or if not, you need to put it in a safety deposit box at the bank. But it needs to have all your financial information. And in it, put a love letter. And I've attached that love letter to your notes. You might just look at it for just a second. A love letter you noted. What should be in the love letter? Well, the most important thing should be right on top, and that's an expression of love that you want your wife to hear in case of your untimely death. So you've died, and she goes to the bank, or she opens that container, and the first thing should be there is a surprise. It's a letter from you telling her how much you love her, telling her what you've meant to her, memories you have, thoughts about her that you've had, the best moments in your marriage. 
Guys, it just takes an hour to sit down and write something like that. But pen that love letter. Remember, her greatest need is the need of affection. And you know what? In case of your untimely death, wouldn't it be great that the very first thing she experiences after your death is you still meeting her number one need? Write her a love letter. And then put it with all this other information, which talks about your assets and where she can get access to that, your liabilities, who your advisors are, especially having, and I would really emphasize this, that you've got one guy you've talked to that can help her walk through all the issues, maybe a team of guys, after your death, and who they are and how to get in contact with them, and so on and so forth. A love letter with that important financial information. That's a must. And then lastly, keep growing in your financial understanding. And here are three good ways to do that. Read some good financial books. They're available everywhere. Seek wise outside counsel and get into a couple's financial study group. Men, remember, when it comes to marriage, the money matters. And no, it can't buy you happiness, but here's what it can do. If you make money work for you at home, I promise you, I promise you, look at me, guys, it sure will quiet your nerves. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.